0: Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Christian with Liberty After Dark, coming at you with the next live stream. This one is all about different institutions in our government. Hopefully you guys enjoy, and let me know if you guys have any suggestions for the future. Just out of curiosity, right before we get started, do we have any constitutionalists in the House? I don't think we do. I think I've pretty much scared all of them away, so we'll see about that. But I'm going to take that as a solid, probably not, which is okay by me. But if you are a constitutionalist, I may offend you today. Peggy's a constitutionalist, really. I might, I might ruffle, in, might ruffle your feathers a little bit because we'll be critiquing the Constitution. But we'll get there when we get there, right? We'll cross that bridge. So, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Liberty After Dark. I am your host, Christian Moore, and today we're going to be talking about all of the faults in our stars and stripes we're basically going to be looking at all of the institutions that compromise our government not all of them but we're going to be looking at a couple of key examples for reasons why minarchists and anarchist libertarians think that th- systematic changes have to be made to the way that we govern um, or the way that we don't govern depending on if you're an anarchist or not and so for a lot of people this is really shocking um, for, it's a, it takes a, it, it elicits a very knee jerk reaction, um, because we as Americans are, are kind of bred and almost indoctrinated into the idea that our institutions are inherently the best on planet earth, whether or not they're the best on planet earth at the moment is a debate, but they're definitely not, in my opinion, the best that they could be. And we're going to be talking about a little bit of that today. So hello to everybody in the chat. Thank you for coming out. It should be a fun time. Uh, as the usual midweek stream goes, it's probably going to be a little bit more of me talking than necessarily interacting. But I'm sure we will have some back and forth dialogue at some point. Or at least get some good commentary from the chat. So thanks again for being here. Love love the fact that you guys come out for this. Um, okay, cool. So let's just start from probably the most logical place. Uh, and that is, let's look at what was really the crux of the formation of this This whole system and that is let's look at the let's look at the the representative bodies we'll look at them separately but i think we can all agree that there is some sort of fault with the legislative branch through both the house and the senate so we'll start with probably the house because i think most people hate the house whether or not you your party is in control of it or not it feels like nothing gets done it feels like everything is just a, a constant bipartisan or not bipartisan uh, partisan bickering and there there's no traction on anything except for unless it's military spending increasing the budget deficit or making sure that uh, Mount McKinley gets a new toilet There seems to be absolutely no traction inside of the federal level representative bodies. And that is not really any of my gripes with the representative body. That is most people's gripes. And I understand those concerns, especially if you're someone who likes to move policy, there's definitely a certain amount of, uh, of frustration that comes with a stagnant organization, but For those of you who aren't very well read up on US history, which is completely fine, not everybody's a huge nerd like me. Something that is very important to the founders when it came to the formation of the Constitution and of the United States is that we had a government that is difficult to move. It is difficult to, in a a moment, wipe away people's rights if the government is difficult to move. Now, if they were all unified for whatever reason in a particular direction across president house we'll we'll talk about the presidency later but house and senate all in one legislative package uh we're all unified towards a single goal you could still run into this problem where legislation could just get funneled through without any regard and so these establishments have been taking some heat lately um there's been you know uh the approval of the house is the lowest it's been in like Thirty years, which it's been the lowest it's been for thirty years, for like the last thirty years, so doesn't really surprise me. Um, we are, we as Americans are supposed to be skeptical and and have not have much faith in our institutions, and that sounds like it's sort of weird. Um, it sounds like we are not, you know, we kind of are shooting ourselves in the foot. But again, this comes back to the idea that the founders had that these systems are not supposed to be fast. They're not. These are supposed to be things where we potentially delegate or deliberate over a specific piece of legislation for an entire legislative session, uh, which some people that blows their minds if we're not passing three, four five bills every time they meet. However, you know, intention of design versus implementation of design, we've realized that there are definitely some issues with what we have. So the founders built a number of supermajority clauses into the actual foundation of the constitution. So things like constitutional amendments or amending the bylaws of the Senate and the House, these all require supermajorities, which is more than two thirds of the House or the Senate and we keep i keep saying these word this word majority so i keep talking about you know you got to have a majority of people in the rep, house of representatives to push a bill to the senate which needs a majority to push it to the president we all know this but what is what is fundamentally so great about a majority right what is great about a supermajority um well if you were to read up on the, the federalist papers there was this was a huge debate at the time of the foundation of America. There's a lot of reading that you can do on the efficacy of the majority in the Federalist Papers and the efficacy of the supermajority, too. And there was a big back-and-forth dialogue across the thinkers of the time as to whether a majority at all was ethical or whether it was, uh, you know, ethically pertinent. Um... And so we can still ask ourselves this question today, two hundred and some odd decades later: Is is the idea of a majority pragmatic, or is it ethical? And I think this is an important question because some people would say, "Well, yeah, the fifty-one over the forty-nine is ethical. That makes sense. You know, the majority f- rules; therefore, the majority gets their way. That way, it's the most fair <coughs> it can possibly be." Um, But whenever we're talking about legislation, we're not really talking about things to where it's like this 51 over the 49 and then the 49's lives don't really change. Um, You know, let's look at taxes as an easy example. If the 51, say, everybody gets a tax increase, the 49, based off of the idea of peaceful governing, just kind of has to lay down and say, well we tried guys they're on their backs with their 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 feet up in the air uh you know we gave it our best shot and we voted against them but now i guess we'll just we'll just pay these exuberant taxes you know or you know let's say the constitution was was different and then we had you know not necessarily the same protections that exist now but we had a majority pick a specific group That has to pay extra taxes. Or has to do XYZ thing. And you know we had that for a long time. It was called slavery. Um, (laughs) It was government backed. uh, And it was a majority over a minority. And the minority didn't even have voting rights. To begin with. But even if they did it wouldn't have mattered. There weren't enough people who qualified. Or would have qualified for voting. Or would have voted to begin with. Or had the ability to. To swing any of that in the other way. So it took Uh, a big big change inside of the system um so so if we can if we can sit here and say well maybe majorities aren't the most ethical thing then what is how do we have a representative body of government that runs off of something that isn't a majority do we have to have like unilateral consensus across everybody so if we were let's just let's just go like a minarchist route Like, we were going to change as many things as possible without changing as much as possible, right? So, you know, this is not necessarily how I would do things, but here's an idea, right? So we keep the legislature as a body, but we strip it of its power. And what it is, is it's a, basically, it's like a G7 meeting, but for the states, right? For the people, and so it's, we, it's basically a group that gets together and says, we live on this landmass. Let's talk amongst each other as people voted as, and, you know, we saw the whole voting thing, which means that at some, to some extent, there was a group that was opposed to this person being in power, which whatever, you know, we're, we're doing the minarchist route. You got to take a little bit of liberties when you can. And, uh, <laughs> not to be too facetious to minarchists out there. But so we have this this body that exists to, as representative members of their communities, deliberate on action as a, as a landmass, not even necessarily as a nation, but as a as people connected geographically and perhaps to a certain extents culturally, almost certainly culturally compared to our northern and southern neighbors, whatever form or fashion that may be in, and uh, you know we can still have some kind of semblance of unity across these whether it be states regions. Small S or big S states, no matter what. Um, We can also have a structure like a Senate, too, that is able to uh, keep things from getting out of hand. Um, Now, this is just something that I'm spitballing out there. But that, that system would be more inherently ethical than the system that we have today. And the reason that that is is because we are taking the power to oppress a minority away from the system. Um, or at least we're mitigating it in this particular example. Now, the easiest way to fix that is to just give the give the whole institution itself the axe, just to just to drop the hammer and and split it right down the middle and just be like, we're done with you, you're gone. Um, however, I get it that a lot of people are not big fans of that, and uh, I don't, I'm not, I can't really say that I'm necessarily a big fan of that either. Uh, however, all these things would require in-U.S. law constitutional amendments to go forth, and they would basi- it would basically be like rewriting the Constitution at this point. So, you know, I'm more pointing out what the major, in my opinion, inadequacy of the institution is, what I would like to see changed in the near future. Um, or, you know, if you ask me, I'm going to say probably just uh, remove it uh, and don't replace it. <laughs> so the Senate is an interesting thing to look at because it is the biggest example of a supermajority built into the framework of the constitution right so we have this senate which is not appropriately representative of the population of a state it gives certain powers to more states yada 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 blah 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 we've all heard this time and time and again and the senate is actually currently under attack for this people are saying that the senate needs to be there needs to be a constitutional amendment there's a push for this there needs to be a constitutional amendment to change the Senate to almost function as a second House of Representatives, right? So it should, they, they believe anyways, that it should be based off of population just like the House of Representatives is. And not only is that completely missing the idea of why the Senate exists, but so we had this issue of of the 51 ruling over the 49 in the House. We don't necessarily have to have that issue in the Senate. So we have the the whole idea of checks and balances exists as a way to be able to pragmatically create institutions that may not necessarily be operating off the most ethical ideals, but one that can continue to function regardless. And continue to function in as is. Dare I say, libertarian fashion as possible, where it mitigates tyranny, it mitigates over influence of government. It, it constantly is having to fight itself to get anything done, and you know that is whether we like to admit it or not, a pretty classical libertarian way of approaching the design of a government. Now, nowadays, obviously, that criteria would probably be laughed at a little bit, but uh, times were different back then. And so we have this issue of the Senate to where we still have inside of the body of the Senate, we have exactly 100 members of the Senate. And so we would have a f- literal 51 over the 49 scenarios we have. Uh, the Senate has a lot of quirky super majorities, too. They have some 60, 40, 65, 35, 70, 30s. It all depends on exactly what they're voting on when and the bylaws of the Senate are fickle creatures. Um, so Whenever we're examining the Senate though, we have a lot of the same issues that we have with the House of Representatives. We have the issue of whenever we are passing legislation through the Senate, we have 51 ruling over the 49. If the legislation said confiscate all AR15s tomorrow and 51% of the Senate passed it through after the House had done the same thing, then you have 49 rep- state Senate representatives who didn't who basically voted that they don't consent to this they are not okay with this passing that is what a vote no is it's not a i don't like this therefore it's it, it, the closest analogy to normal life is you saying that you don't consent to something you don't agree with it you're not okay with it that's what a vote nay towards the legislation is essentially worded as in the founding documents that you 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 do not wish to be held to these standards so then you just, you know, if it get let's say it gets passed there. So a lot of my criticisms to the Senate are similar to the House, but I kind of wanted to show that there is a dichotomy between the two that can be interesting to analyze sometimes. Uh when you we'll just go straight up the chain to the presidency. Not only does the presidency have these exuberant executive powers that have been abused for the last oh god, 7 decades, really? I mean, eight maybe if you want to get really creative and like look a little bit further back. Um, but oh, man, uh, Peggy here said, Adam said he would do one executive order to abolish the government. How realistic is that? Um, it's not the, well, okay, let me, let me put it this way. The president doesn't have the power to do that. The president doesn't have the power to do a lot of the things the president does. Um, it's, It's not as easy as coming in and saying the government is abolished. What he can do is he can abolish a lot of the executive organizations, FBI, CIA, Homeland Security, um, NSA, all of these executive attached organizations with a wave of his pen. He could completely dissolve them. Um, That is a hundred percent within the power of the president would that fly no he would be killed strung up by his ankles uh before that executive order ever left his office it's not happening um was was jfk trying to do that jfk was trying to mess with the federal reserve whether that has anything to do with his murder or not i don't know i legitimately don't know i'm not being coy um I, I don't like to, to be certain about things that I'm not certain about. However, JFK was working on an executive order, not to dissolve the fed basically, but to pretty much do like a light audit on the fed to be like, what are you guys actually doing here? Um, so that, you know, that whether or not that got him killed is a completely different conversation for another day. Um, is it possible? Sure is it also completely not possible? Yes, completely. I have no idea, honestly. Uh I'd have to do significantly more research than I have into that topic to give you an answer like that. Um but back on the the train that we were going on, the executive branch as a whole is really just a clusterfuck. Like let's just be honest here. Like let's drop the niceties and the analytics. Like it is It is the single most, you know, you can argue that the judiciary is powerful, but without the executive branch to enforce the standards of the judiciary, none of it matters. Literally none of it matters. Um, they are the enforcement arm of legislation. So did you ever hear that Andrew Jackson paid off the national debt and killed the bankers of the time? I've never heard that. Um, that is an interesting no i've never heard that before that's pretty much the easiest way i don't usually pay too much attention to history of that time frame i'm more of a founders to present kind of guy um i know some stuff about like the reformation period through the 1900s um but i'm not necessarily very well read on andrew jackson so um i know that you know his whole essentially uh Oh he called them the den of Vipers, yeah, I was gonna say I know that he he purged a lot of people from government, and there's also some interesting claims of nepotism from him, but or maybe not what is the friend version of nepotism, whatever you know, but say almost an analog to a little bit of what we're seeing today, but it's whatever, regardless there's a certain amount of leniency that you can give the founders whenever they were building the executive branch because there was a massive division between the federalists and the anti-federalists the people who pretty much wanted the minimal amount of of centralized government and the people who wanted a a powerful central government to think get things done and to an extent Both sides were wrong in unique ways. Not that I think I would have definitely more aligned with the anti-federalists because they had a lot of legitimate concerns about the power of government. And the federalists overall were just kind of silly. They were very pragmatic, extremely pragmatic. They were like, look guys, we'll never get anything done without a big federal government. Besides the will, we'll put in a bill of rights. The federal government will never ever worry about it. Actually, Excuse me, I'm wrong. The Anti-Federalists are the ones who said that if we form this, we want a Bill of Rights. The Federalists said that there's no way that a government would ever oppress its people. It's just not fathomable. And um, that always, it always makes me laugh to this day. They literally pulled themselves out of an oppress, oppressive government and said, Well, if we build this government with a Constitution, it won't matter. So you can think the Anti-Federalists for the Bill of Rights. Which is probably one of the best things about getting in, uh about the 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 institutions that we have today um I heard Thomas Jefferson had a hard time getting in after winning the presidency. Do you mean like what do you mean getting in like lit physically getting into the building? I don't know um Thomas Jefferson was a very different president than he was f- philosopher or. Political scientist? I don't know. <laughs> he was, uh, he governed vastly different than how he believed governing should be done. And a lot of that has to do with the stresses that he incurred because he picked up a, a just a fawning nation with horrible financial policy and just absolutely no realistic way to get income. And they want, <laughs> they didn't want him in without a deal. Yeah. There's, uh, I mean, the whole Barbary Coast Wars thing is just like a huge stain on Thomas Jefferson's reputation. And I I I, so I understand why he did it to hold, like, protect the trade routes thing. But, you know, I mean, the first, first thing he did was he stripped down our Navy to a bunch of gunboats and then started a war with pirates. Those two things don't really coincide. Like, I get it if you want to strip down the military. That's very Thomas Jefferson of him to do. But it's not very Thomas Jefferson to go fight wars with pirates and then lose. Um, (laughs) So, I'm being more facetious than I am really anything. But it is pretty uh, unfortunate what had happened uh, during the the Jefferson presidency. And, you know, this kind of goes to show you that presidents are usually under a lot of pressure. Unless they just don't care. Which some of them throughout history just... Excuse me. Haven't cared. So you know they've had a little bit better time than others. But the presidency changes people. They come in one person, leave another. And because they, there is an expectation. First, you don't you don't become the president without something you want to change. And you realize that you can't change anything as the president unless you really game the system in your favor. Um, you have to be a fantastic leader. You have to be very in line with party politics. Um, You have to make everybody happy. Otherwise you're everyone's enemy. So when a president comes in trying to do legislation, it's, you know, a president can't propose legislation, but they can coordinate with their, their party and even bipartisans. If they, they wanted to go that route and try to push legislation. We do still run into this issue. However, though, of where, This man was elected through a 51 over 49 majority. And I'm not going to be a broken record and go through all over again why I believe that that's a broken, archaic system. But we have someone who's been given an exuberant amount of power, especially as of late, because of his ability to abuse and use the executive order system. Which basically, I mean, guys, like, some people think this is hyperbolic, but he's pretty much just like two steps below a king. Like... I, I really don't see how that's an in, inappropriate comparison, especially the current chief executive that we have right now is, is extremely bold about how he throws around his, his power as in the president is not supposed to have any power except for what is framed inside of the constitution. The idea of the president is that he is an American citizen who is the executive orders have been around since day one. That was a policy that's been drafted into the constitution since literally the beginning. It's in the actual fundamentals of the constitution. I don't know exactly what article off the top of my head, but whichever article delegates the powers of the presidency delegates the executive orders. Now, what an executive order is supposed to do has changed over time, just like a number of other things. Um, like what is the purpose of the judiciary and things like that has all changed over time. And this is one of the things that has definitely changed for the worse. The executive, the ability of the executive to, for example, call national emergencies to open up a pot of funds that normally doesn't get touched for pretty much whatever he wants. I know Donny T wound up only using a portion of that funding from his national emergency but really this just pretty much proves that you can call a national emergency over anything and there isn't a legal precedent to stop them it's like what's an emergency that's subjective and the power when it comes to subjective terms like that the discretion is in the hands of the wielder of that power so that's why the judiciary didn't get involved because when whenever you're looking at things like operative terms and and law and stuff like that. If you're looking to where the power can be utilized and delegated to, if it's not explicit, it's literally just to the person who the power uh, has been delegated to. It is up to their discretion. So if you Peggy became president and said, I want to call a national emergency because everyone doesn't have ponies and then you snap your fingers and you start the – you use that funding to start the distribution of, of Pony Bureau or pony, pony Bureau of Distribution or whatever you want to call it. The Bureau of Pony Distribution. How about that? Yeah, BPD. There we go. That's what you start up. So you could open up that national emergency pot. People would be super mad, especially people not in your party and because you're not becoming president as an independent can we just say that? You're more likely to become a president as a libertarian than you are as an independent. Just throwing that one out there. Um, So your party will definitely be throwing some question marks at you. But it comes down to you as the executive being delegated powers that have no frame of reference to them. And these exist all over not just with national emergencies but with the executive order because the idea of the presidency was is that we're supposed to give this to someone who isn't going to abuse these powers no matter how tempting the sweet chocolate bar of power is these people were supposed to be above that and push themselves away from it and say yeah. at the end of the day you aren't president of the United States of America that's your that's your job that's like your day job it's like being a milkman right you are an American citizen who exists for the sole well-being of the American citizen. That is, that is how it was designed. That is the only reason that the president was given these abilities. And the first president is arguably the most model example of that. George Washington was like the man's man. He was the people's champion. He literally fought for the American people in... Probably the most ethical war we've ever been in. Um, maybe besides the war of like 1812, whenever we were like invaded, you know, that was probably it's pretty ethical war too. But so that whenever they were designing this presidency, they might as well have just said like, we're designing this role for everyone to be George Washington. Obviously we're not all going to be George Washingtons. So we've had some great presidents. We've had some garbage presidents comparatively. I think most of them suck, but Comparatively speaking, uh, and we've in the last really 30, 40 years have had some presidents who think they're a little bit bigger than their boots say they are. Um, and that's an issue and it keeps getting worse. You know, we, 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 whenever Obama was president, a lot of us, you know, oh, King Obama over here passing all these executive orders, Trump is literally 10 times worse than that man ever was about being the whole, like, King Obama thing. I will give the only piece of credit I'll give W anything is that towards the end of his presidency, he kind of just, like, stopped caring and just stopped pushing things and was just like, I'm president of the United States of America. Someone get me a taco. You know, whatever. Have have fun, baby Bush. You know, you monster. (laughs) But, um... We got Obama, we got King Obama, and now we, I call him God, King, Trump, ruler of all with divine Masonic providence because that's the only thing fitting of a man of his stature. Um, and, and I'm not just bashing on him for the sake of bashing on him. I'm bashing on him to make a point, is that these are issues that our founding fathers did not even contemplate as being potential issues. Now, the executive branches only check when it came down to stuff like that is the only the only the only check is if the legisl- or if the judiciary gets involved but the judiciary has made it extremely clear that unless there is like a super hard constitutional violation like it says the president cannot have uh, a, an elephant in his home and then the president brings an elephant into his home like unless it's just so black and white a sixth grader could write the case they're not going to they're not going to push it because the president is the direct holder of these powers and because of that and because of the wording of the constitution the president 9 times out of 10 is the one who gets to dictate the extent of those powers what is a national emergency that's up to the president what is a necessary expenditure of funds that's up to the president what is the necessary size for home renovations and budget for the president That's up to the freaking president. The money allocated out to the executive branch is technically from the legislation. But what happens to it after that can be changed at any moment by the executive. Because he's the one in charge of those programs. Uh, Trump is working for Israel's best interests. Um, I think most of our previous presidents have, honestly. Even Obama, who was not a big fan of the whole... Dynamic going on over there. I mean, there are there. What what is what is Israel typically called? The bastion of democracy in the in the sandbox. Um, whether it is or not is an extremely debatable topic. Uh, I'm not a huge fan. However, comma um, there's some efficacy to has having a friend over there geopolitically speaking. I'm I'm being mm, I I hate to say this, but I, I honestly am kind of being like mildly pragmatic there because we don't have the ability to influence geopolitical allies like we do our own nation. We really don't. So took us from two wars to seven for Israel. Yeah. Well, we're not exactly doing any better right now either. It's like we left Syria, but we're back in Afghanistan and we're back in blowing up people in Yemen and I won't get, you know, that's, that's a topic for another day about, we can talk about that next week about the super long chain of wars and what led us here, because I've got a ton of information on the geopolitical nightmare that was leading up to the current Middle Eastern conflict. And I would love to share it if anybody wants to listen. Um, we talked about Syria once and it was just like, it's, it's a tangled web, but yeah. Uh, yeah. And so, really, the last thing that I want to talk about is, you know, I could sit here and I could talk about what's wrong with the FBI and the CIA and the NSA and the Homeland Security and the the Department of Education, and I can can break all these down. But I think, really, what it's coming down to is that all of the everything else starts from the top and works its way down. So, the judiciary, the biggest issue with the judiciary is the amount of power it was given. And you, you have to remember again, that when the founders had a certain amount of naivete about them, whenever they were drafting the constitution, not to suggest that they weren't brilliant people, not to suggest that they wouldn't out debate me in a heartbeat, but there was this, this fabric of, of, of n- no other way to put it of just this naive belief that only the most appropriate people would get into these positions. And so there were checks placed on the judiciary, but not as many as it needed. Honestly, does the government fall if the federal reserve goes under? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. Government's too big to fail. If depending on who you ask, um, but like i was saying the the judiciary exists almost it's supposed to be three the third part of the triangle but if you really look at the power of the judiciary and how it's been used over the last decade two decades actually more than that honestly the judiciary was probably the first one to really get abused um i mean we had court packing in the 1940s for Pete's sake um Peggy, where would they get the money? The Treasury Department already exists. The, the government had money before the Federal Reserve existed. So, a centralized banking system isn't necessary for a centralized currency. We just have a centralized banking system because the banks. But, again, like I was saying, the judiciary, um, the Federal Reserve didn't kill off gold and silver. We killed off gold and silver, um, we could have operated the Federal Reserve under a gold and silver standard. That's, that's you know, those two things, I mean, for example, the Bank of England, when it first came out, was, a, you know, and this is a long time ago, but whenever the Bank of England first was used and implemented as a tool, it was backed on the gold and silver standard. Now, it left, eventually. Um, it was, but they resolved it all. Well, it's it's not difficult. It really isn't. I know a lot... Of, I, Whoa, geez. Sorry, I was messing with this knob. <laughs> it sounds more difficult than it is. But... All, now, would it... Would it mess up financial markets if we were to do this? Sure, but there's... There's no, like, international law that says you can't change what your currency is pegged to. This has happened multiple times over the decades where a c- country will have its money backed in whatever oil, I don't know, soybeans, like just pick, pick your commodity. You can back, you can back a currency and whatever you want, man. You can for, for a long time, currency in uh, Thailand was backed with rice. Um, that's just historical. And it was actually a really good deal because food was kind of hard to get on the Island for a while. So you could exchange your money for rice. Okay. You know, that's, that's a commodity that we all see is valuable. Uh, Obviously that changed after a not very long time, but it was definitely a part of the formation of their banking system. And we, again, you know, we run into this idea of like, well, we can never go back. What's stopping us? Well, it's hard to go back. It's scary to go back. I'll give you that. We would send the entire international banking system into an absolute tailspin as Market recorrections shot throughout the entire system because so many currencies are pinned to the U.S. dollar that if we change, they all change, um, and that is that is wow. You want to talk about some like immediate repercussions? People are going to freak out. Um, There's a really interesting idea though that you could you could spark a mini crash before like a big crash is coming doing that and you could avert it um it's it's market manipulation at its finest but say we knew we were about to go into a depression what you do is is that you cause a depression before the bubble's ready to burst but isn't china russia trying to ditch the dollar they were never part of the dollar they keep dollars on hand because internationally all the oil exchanges are done in dollars they are trying to change that though i can't blame them i really can't like if we're talking about US best interests, sure, they should keep trading oil in in US dollars because that's better for us. If we keep the US... People say the US dollar isn't tied to anything. It's tied to oil. That is what the US dollar is tied to. Whatever the price of a barrel of oil is internationally is in US dollars. And then they convert it from that. We that 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 is the international value of the US dollar. Otherwise, all currency would just be freely exchanged between each other. That's the only reason that every country on planet Earth keeps U.S. dollars on hand, except for a couple that don't trade in oil. Um, Like, yeah, which is not very many at all. Um, So, yeah, that's what it comes down to. And I I know it's kind of like a meme, and a lot of people don't even understand why the meme is funny. It's like, haha, yo, we're going over the Middle East to get oil. We have so much investment in that Middle Eastern OPEC oil market, if they all switched to, like... You know, this is getting a little bit in a conspiracy theory territory, but Iraq had stopped purchasing oil with U.S. dollars like literally three months before we invaded them. Is that a coincidence? Weird, right? I don't know. Um, th- th- it would do really bad things to us because of the global supply of... of of US currency, it would do really bad things to us if all of a sudden all of that wasn't as useful as it was before. But we want the dollar to drop power, right? There isn't an excuse to So there's a whole trade aspect of oh, if we make the dollar weaker, we get better deals in trade. The only reason that this is a problem is because we're operating off of esoteric trade philosophies. This is you know, the days of mercantilism are dead. Like we are done fighting over like accumulating as much gold as possible. Like these are gone. These times are gone and that's fine. However, what is really important to understand is that like things like these tariffs and stuff like that are the reason that we want this weak dollar so that if they put X percentage on import tariffs, right? And we have a weaker dollar, we can offset the amount of, of loss on tariffs with supply and they also conversely have to inflate their losses with supply of the US dollar. So it it's it's a really dirty tactic. It's like it's like watering down your whiskey, right? It's not no, it's stop putting copper in your gold coins, stop debasing your currency for strategic trade manipulation when we should just have free trade to begin with. Do you do you know who loses in a free trade operation, Peggy? Do you know who loses? The government loses. That's it. Okay? We're talking about an institution versus all of the people involved. No, we do not all lose in free trade. That is a myth that has been pushed by a bunch of Keynesian economists for the last 80, 90 years. The reason that we have defensive trade is because we used to be a massive manufacturing. We used to have a massive influx of 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 manufacturing into the states. Hell, the 1940s and 50s, it's all we did. Oh, yeah, and not free trade. Yeah, we all lose in not free trade. In free trade, only the government loses. We, as citizens, as people, as users of the market, not market manipulators, we have nothing to lose by doing free trade. So, you know, it, it comes right over here. Like, right? we would want the power of the dollar to drop, right? Like, yes, in a, in a world of trade where trade is this game of numbers where you try to inflate the, or deflate the value of your currency by increasing supply so that you can offset losses while they increase losses so that they take a higher trade deficit. So they want to renegotiate deals. It's this, this whole game is garbage and it's just to put money in the pockets of the government and to play with their their allies, or their enemies, trade enemies. Not even necessarily political enemies, trade enemies too. We've done this historically with Western Europe. They're not political enemies of ours. Like We may not be politically aligned or philosophically aligned, but they are geopolitical allies that we've done fucky trade shit with because whatever, we we want to be the best traders on planet Earth. We're a service-based economy. The lower we spend on goods coming into America, and the cheaper we can get services and and what we do produce out to the rest of the world, the more competitive we are. This international economy does not have time for this tariff crap. So I know I just went on a huge tirade about uh, trade and stuff, but that's that's one of my that's one of my pet peeves. People not understanding, like, the basics of trade. Because especially, especially Trump supporters. My God. These people act like they literally just graduated from the highest economics school on planet Earth. I didn't. I know I didn't. And I still know 20 times these people know. They're like, oh, I took an economics class in college. And I'll tell you that there's blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, well, obviously... You are either lying or you didn't learn anything because everything that you're saying is wrong. Like, yeah, we got to debase our currency so that we can get them out. Like, in the imaginary world of the 1960s that we still live in, this kind of makes sense a little bit. I mean, we could still do free trade back then, but it would hurt us more directly while benefiting... Like, I don't care about the United States, guys. I really don't. I don't care about... about this, I care about it, but I don't, like, I'm not here so that the United States government is better. I'm here so that our lives are better, that everybody's lives are better. So when people are like, we, you know, if, if we have a bad trade, it's going to be bad for the U.S. government. I'm like, well, what does it do for you? I'm like, well, I get these goods cheaper and blah, blah. That sounds, am- that sounds like an amazing trade-off to me. If anybody's going to pick government over either themselves or their own community or their neighbors or their friends, like, whoa, I'm not even going to go down that road anymore. I could, I could, I could go on that tirade for forever, but yeah, Um, we need Austrian economics, right? That is correct. The school of Austrian economics, laissez-faire economics, uh, a lot of John Locke, a lot of uh, other classical philosophers of his time. He's probably the most notable example, um, but not for the reason that people think either. Not so that corporations can run amok and you know make slave labor and stuff like that, because markets, as they exist, will always be a force that is untamable. Mark my words. Mark my words. Even communist China with one of the most efficient command and control economies on planet earth, went through a massive depression. And they had the tightest leash on that economy possible. Markets always win. And the harder you fight them, the worse it is. The harder you fight the markets, the worse it is. The crash in the 20s was so horribly bad because we fought it. And we inflated the markets as hard as possible. The dot-com bubble was so bad because people are dumb. Less less because of government, but a little bit because of government. But more because people were really stupid about dot-com being a thing. But <laughs> the 2008 financial crisis. If they would have just left the markets alone, if they would have just let the housing bubble go through its thing, we would have been out of it before we... It would have not been this two, three-year-long... Cataclysm of the economy that we apparently have fully recovered from, and then some. And oh man, it, what's really crazy about this is that we are setting ourselves up for an extremely large failure in the next couple of years. A, a recession is coming, two to three years, may, maybe five, if we're super lucky, and they do a really good job at manipulating the economy. The next two to five years, we're gonna have another recession. There's going to be a bubble. It's going to pop. We're not going to be able to decrease interest rates. And because, you know, I feel like I blame the guy for everything. But Donald Trump will not let the Fed do its one freaking job. The Fed has one job. Two, keep an eye on the monetary policy. Mitigate crashes and crises. That is the whole reason central banks exist. It's not to build a loan structure. Like Those are positive perks for the bank and sort of for us, depending on how you look at how debt-based economies work. But that is the whole idea of why you need a central bank tied to your currency is for that reason. And if we have interest rates so freaking low That if we were to lower them, we'd have to basically go to the zeros or the negative percents, which is just a, I will give you money to take a loan out. Think about that. Think about that. Like, think of how desperate that of a situation that puts our currency, our economy, like you want to talk about debasing a currency to put some negative interest rates on everything. You know? You want to talk about setting people up for failure in the future? You think banks aren't going to do variable interest rates where you can get like 1% on a new house starting because they're getting negative interest rates. You're paying 1%. Yeah. And then you're going to get a variable interest rate of freaking 13% down the road. And you're going to be paying <laughs> a kidney every time you got to make a mortgage payment. I don't know. I mean, I do know I that's why I'm telling you this, but it, it, it is ludicrous how many people do not understand It is bonkers. And in this highly politicized society that we have, where everyone wants to be involved in this freaking political process, you have to know what you're talking about, or I'm going to laugh at you or someone in, in in my group is going to laugh at you. And we're just going to be completely honest about it. Like you have to know what you're talking about. I don't care if you're even like a big time Canadian, that means that you understand the fundamentals of, Economics, whether or not we agree on a lot of things, is a question. But you understand the fundamentals of economics, and we can hold the discussion. But what I personally am getting really tired of is of people with their, you know, whether whether they be on the left or the right, who just start talking economics and have literally no idea what they're talking about in the slightest. They are just throwing out words that they have heard on the news, or or have heard there from their favorite podcast. And they are just, it's just spilling from their mouths. And they don't understand a single bit of what they're saying. It was gonna it, it was inevitably gonna happen. Some someone was gonna say something that sent me on a tirade. This happens, I swear, every time. We weren't even talking about economics today, but you know what? It looks like we're also talking about economic policy today. Because we don't get enough of that on my show. <laughs> oh man. All I was gonna do. Was talk about the judiciary branch and how it has too much power and how the founders were a little bit naive in its organization. It really wasn't that interesting, honestly. The most interesting part is analyzing the foundation of these organizations. But I, I'm getting a message from somebody. I think. No, I'm not. I, I think I'm not. Weird. But yeah, it's just uh, that's a good one to get me going. We start talking about some economics, really. Like I said, I'm not, you know, some Harvard grad in economics. I'm not the most verbose person. I get corrected plenty of times, but at least I have some semblance of an idea of what I'm talking about. Like, holy crap. How hard is that? You know, how hard is it to just, just read some, like, honestly, like when people say, oh yeah, we've got to debase the currencies so that we can, win trade wars, and I was like, okay, well, who does that help? And well, it helps the government, which blah blah, 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 like, stop. You are not the government. You are not the people who benefit from this. You lose. When your currency is debased, we lose. Us normal people lose. Cost of living goes up. Wages haven't been increasing with inflation. Why do you think it's going to change at all? Like, what? what does... I know exactly what Donald Trump thinks is going to happen. Donald Trump thinks it's going to happen is that he's impervious to this change because he's a filthy rich man with basically all the power in the world at this moment. And good. I mean, good Lord. Like, uh, wow. I mean, what do you mean? He doesn't care about these changes. What do you mean? he, He thinks we should debase the currency. Of course he does because it doesn't matter to him. If a gallon of milk goes from being, what is it now? Like $4? I don't know. I haven't bought milk in a minute. I'm not a big milk drinker. That was a horrible example, basically. But, you know, like anything really, like cost of living has gone up, which has definitely been a a big part of the increase of that particular item. And that literally just gets worse as the currency debases because these on the corporate level, they see these changes. They adjust prices. They do. They manipulate with the trade so that they are getting their cut at the end of the day. That does not always trickle down, guys. Like I, I, I just have to be honest here. Like, cons- if you want the best results from top to bottom, you maintain consistency so that because consi- because consistency breeds confidence in corporations, in, in organizations, in businesses. Good lord, I'm just making all kinds of noises today. Hasn't the Federal Reserve already dug themselves in a hole? I talked about this a couple episodes ago, but. We're, the biggest issue with the Federal Reserve right now, not only the fact that they've loaned out an exuberant amount of money over its lifetime, but the the biggest issue is that we have interest rates super low right now. If we were to raise interest rates, we could trigger a crash. If we don't lower or if we don't raise interest rates, when we do have a crash, we're not going to be able to lower them enough to relieve. The economy. So, when you look, I don't know how familiar you are with this, but when you lower interest rates on Federal Reserve loans, the banks in turn lower their interest rates so that you will take out a loan, so that you, and Peggy, will take out a loan and will make the most of it. You know, you will inject money into the economy. It is essentially the homegrown stimulus package. Um, and that's probably the most ethical way to manipulate a market failing. It's the most direct way to do so, is literally putting money in your pocket to go spend it, to, to to keep businesses running. Because is businesses closing their doors during a recession is not a good thing. Not a good thing. They they If you want to get out of it as quickly as possible, everybody needs to go back to normal as fast as possible. When people become shut-ins during a recession, and I get it, some people don't have a choice. They lose their jobs, they take a pay cut, whatever. Um, but... When people start like doing that mass saving reactionary thing, that is not good for the economy. That is very bad for the economy um as much as we hate them, especially during things like recessions. Paycheck to paycheck spenders on that little bullshit who don't know how to save any money are the best people for reinjecting life into the economy if they only had more money <laughs> that's this, that's why things like automotive manufacturers always bite the dust. Whenever we have a recession. It could be banking. It could be dot com. Whatever. Because cars are not something that you need to replace every four to five years. Unless you've got money to blow. That That is the biggest failing of the Federal Reserve at the moment. I mean besides the fact that they exist. Besides the fact that they have a, an incredibly broken debt based economy. Now that can almost certainly never truly be reversed. We have We have reached a point where. If we increase interest rates, we're we are we're gonna mm, we we risk triggering something big. And if we raise them too slowly to where it doesn't have a a massive impact, well, two things will happen. One, we'll be slowing growth in the future, which means that we're gonna be continuing to lose face in the economy faster. So even if it doesn't trigger a, a a crisis or or a crash, it will just make it to where it falls. From uh, you know, we want to be as high up on the hill as possible when we fall, because there is such a thing as floor to ceiling or, or ceiling to floor. Sorry, so like Dow is not gonna fall from what is it now? Like twenty three freaking thousand dollars, twenty two thousand, whatever it is, twenty seven billion. I don't even know off the top of my head. I'm not whatever. Put pick pick a number, and it's not gonna fall from that to one dollar. That's not, it's not going to happen. There is a ceiling to floor concept to where it will only fall a certain amount before people are like, okay, well, everything is in shambles, but this still is like invaluable. And it's an index by the way, as well. So it's not like you can, I'll take one dowel, please. Like that's not how it works, but you know, the, the index exists to show these things. And we just had a, a massive drop out of nowhere it fell almost $2,000 because bonds inverted. And now they've gone back to 2%, which is like, I'm not a fear monger. I'm not here to make you all like, Oh no, the fa-. like these are something that we, you know, we just as adults all just have to accept the fact that like these things happen, they're going to continue to happen. Nothing we do will ever stop them from happening. Uh, every 15 to 20 years, we are going to have some kind of financial crisis. So depending on who you ask, 15 to 20, some say 12 to 20, every 12 to 20, 15 to 20 years, we're going to have some kind of financial crisis and it's going to rock our freaking worlds. Some worse than others, some better than others, but you know, people will lose their jobs. The economy will go through its cycle and that's healthy. That is what is supposed to happen. Here's a great question that I get all the time. It's like, well, we don't ha- crashes don't have to happen. If we manage the economy well, these things don't have to happen. Crashes have to happen for two reasons. One, I want you to think of every massive innovation in a market that you've ever seen. Ever. What either, what either came right before it or happened during it? I'll give you like five seconds to come up with an answer. What, what happened specifically think about 2008 what happened right before 2008 that was really big that changed our lives forever think about the dot-com bubble what happened right before that that was really big and changed our lives forever what happened during the 80s crash what happened right before that no market innovation market innovation the iphone came out. massive web servers the ability for anybody to surf the internet at the click of a button was the 90s the eighties was the computer revolution. These were things that were not ubiquitous before then. Those are not; those aren't crashes by design. What they, what, what crashes do is that they open up economic opportunities for people to, and, and and products to prosper. And I know people don't like to hear that, but this reciprocal nature of things these these are these are opportunities. You have opportunity. You have peak, or you have sustained peak, fall, new opportunity. That's how it works. And I'm not saying that that means like the whole economy gets shaken up every time, but that's how these things work, right? Like Apple won't exist forever. Google won't exist forever. They'll probably exist for a really freaking long time, but all things die, right? Everything dies. No matter how big and strong you are, the US the government will die. Everything will will fade away. There's nothing you can do in a flexible economy, like a healthy economy is, to keep us from having crashes and that's what i was talking about earlier with china the whole command control economy idea they had the tightest leash they were choking the hell out of that economy saying no no you're gonna stay right next to me i'm gonna watch everything you do and guess what it still bit the baby when it was right next to him in front of him because you know what it's a horrible analogy don't listen to my analogy i don't know why i said bit the baby not all dogs bite babies but you know (laughs) You can watch your dog as much as you want. You can train him as hard as possible. You're not going to pee. He's still got to pee eventually. It's still a dog. It doesn't matter. And then when he's been holding it for four days and he pees everywhere and it's just like all over the place, when he could have just peed outside, it would have been fine. You know, maybe it would have been inconvenient. You would have had to open up the door. Oh man, the hot air is getting in. Ugh. Again, a horrible analogy, but I am nothing if not the supplier of the worst analogies on planet Earth. So yeah, every major crash that we've ever had was precipitated by a market shakeup. Four days. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that poor dog. (laughs) Unless you have any other questions, I don't believe I have too much to add to that particular topic. Um, And so we will probably be wrapping up soon. Well, guys, I think that's pretty much it for today. Uh, We were going to talk about institutions and then we done... You know what? But I guess we talked about financial institutions. So why not? I guess it kind of works out. So I have no idea what the next episode is going to be about. We may have a guest. We may not. Um, We'll be shooting from the hip on that one. We may just have a chat with the chat episode. Who knows? But uh, yeah, I think that's it. Does anybody have anything else? Did I have any other news? No, just that. Oh yeah, we'll be doing an extra episode next week to make up for not having... A weekend stream like normal, so we'll do Sunday, then we'll do Thursday, then we'll do Saturday. So it'll be like a triple week stream instead of because it'll technically be my Monday, so it's three in a week for me. But some people count Sundays beginning of the beginning week. I don't know. So yeah, that's it. All right, I'm gonna get out of here. You guys got anything else? Five, four, three, two, one. Peggy says, "Have a nice day. See you on the next one." It was fantastic having you out. Please come out. Um, you guys are all amazing. Take it easy.